0: We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm super excited to have my next guest here. We have Dan McCormick, who is the founder and CEO of an incredible company that it if you do not know about this company, you need to go and pick up a bag, uh, definitely become more and more aware of it which I know you will as well, but it's called Create. And uh, I actually discovered it on Twitter. I was uh, hearing people talk about it and I reached out to Dan and wanted to know a little bit more about it. Uh, Not only is it an awesome new company, but also it's the first of a kind creatine gummy. And if you have not heard of creatine, You must be living under a rock because it's probably one of the hottest ingredients out there that many people are putting into a lot of different things, but not gummies. And uh, so definitely, Dan has sort of taken place in the market that is really, really interesting. Obviously, health and wellness supplements are a hard category, but he is taking this on and uh, taking an idea and a passion for wellness and really driving it to not only direct to consumer right now, but we'll hear
1: a lot more about his plans for the future. So welcome, Dan. Kara, thanks so much for having me. And uh nice to take it from Twitter to podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And if I could talk this morning, it would be uh it would be even better, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a Monday we all have our morning. Mornings. So yeah, exactly. So your story in deciding to create create is a great one. I'd love for you to share it, kind of what made you decide first of all to go and start your own company, but also what was it about creatine that you really felt was something that you wanted to bring to the masses in a better form than you had ever seen it.
1: Yeah. So my story is Double-pronged. It's both from a business perspective and a personal perspective. And I'll start with the personal because I think that's perhaps more compelling. Um, so I've been taking creatine for well over a decade, like many men predominantly. I got into creatine for the first time early in high school. Um, I'm not a bodybuilder. I wasn't a super serious athlete. I know we're on a podcast, but if you can see the video. I don't exactly look like your stereotypical creatine user, at least in the public perception of what a creatine user looks like. But I always had a really positive experience with the supplement. When I would tell people that I was taking it, I would get kind of these sideways looks of, dude, why are you taking creatine? That's not for you. Your kidneys are going to fail. Your hair is going to fall out. You're going to get terrible acne. And I just never really had those negative side effects. And so I do what everyone does. I, I go and research the compound. And if you're willing to put in kind of five minutes of research on creatine, you quickly come to realize that it's the most studied fitness supplement on the market. Um, the people that take their health and wellness the most seriously uh, consider this a table stakes nutrient versus an anabolic steroid, right? It's actually a relatively um, muted supplement relative to the other things that people are putting in their body. And the important thing about creatine is, and, and this is pretty well seen out throughout all the research, is that it actually does what it purports to do. It's a research-backed effective supplement. And so that gap between my personal experience and what you know, even just cursory research showed me. Uh, I always thought that was a weird kind of uh, chasm and uh, was ripe for D2C uh, disruption and pulling that to the business side of things, Creatine, I've been in um, e-commerce for you know just under a decade by the time I started Create and I kind of developed a checklist of these are the characteristics of a business that were I to start kind of the perfect D2C widget factory, I'd want this product mm-hmm. or this company to check some of these boxes. So it's a naturally recurring replenishment business. It's structurally high margin. You can build a really nice uh, e-commerce D2C business off of it, but there's natural transition to omnichannel. And I think this last point is important that uh, there's only 2% penetration in the general population of people in the U.S. taking creatine. So only 2% of the general population were taking it. And a core belief I had was that that number is 20 to 40X underpenetrated. Like... Literally uh, anywhere from 40 to 80% of the population, based on our research and based on where we were seeing trends going, could meaningfully benefit from proper creatine supplementation. But for a variety of reasons that I hope we get into, um, it was just had a terrible shake of it for the last 25 years. And because of that terrible branding, because of that stigma, because of that misperception, it just left this wide open market opportunity.
0: So you mentioned that you had been taking it even you know, prior to, uh, I guess since high school. So what was like the promise of creatine? Like, why do people start taking it? Is it to gain body mass or what, what is it that will you gain weight from it? I mean, what, what is it that sort of people are taking it now as an ingredient and, uh, and, and has it changed over time too?
1: Yeah. So I think when uh, creatine first came on the scenes in the late 90s, early 2000s, the promise of creatine is that it's going to get you, quote unquote, jacked. It's going to help you get gains. And for that reason, largely men at the time were taking it to increase strength, build muscle mass, have better workouts. Those things are all still true today. Creatine all else equal. You take it after two to four weeks, you're seeing 10 to 15% increase in strength. You're seeing your muscle volume increase you're seeing better recovery in and outside of workouts. What's most interesting, and I think what is partially uh, sparking this kind of new interest in creatine is that there are actually a whole kind of slew of different research coming out around creatine and cognitive benefits, everything from cognitive performance to improved memory to actually potential treatment for anxiety, depression, and a few other uh, mental health diseases. That is not exactly how we're framing our company. But it is research that we're really excited about. And I think what a lot of consumers are discovering creatine for the first time around.
0: How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app. No matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor, as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive. to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So it's one thing to be interested in, in an ingredient and go and work for direct to consumer companies and have this idea that maybe you should go do something that that puts you in the founder status but it's a big step, right? There's a lot easier ways to make money than actually becoming a founder, right? You're probably spending <laughs> more than you're you're making uh if if you're like most founders uh so Talk to me about what was the moment when you just said, I want to go and start this company.
1: Yeah. I I think to your point, there's a lot easier ways to get rich than to start a D2C business. In fact, it's a great way to to light money on fire for a lot of founders. That's not supposed to be discouraging. I think you just have to go into these businesses with a deep understanding of what makes the business model work. And oftentimes it it, it doesn't for a, a bunch of different product categories. Um, I think what started for me, like I, I come from an entrepreneurial family. I have two siblings that have started companies. My, both my parents started small businesses. So I think, uh, for better or worse, it's always been part of me that I've wanted to start something, uh, and, and kind of create something and and see it out in the world. Um, I think the initial spark for create, uh, had been my last company, had a really good experience running kind of the business side of a high growth brand. And for the first time kind of realized, Oh, um, These people starting these brands, they are very impressive people. Uh, In many cases, they're visionaries, but they're not that different uh, than you or I on a day-to-day basis. They're normal people. They put their their pants on one leg at a time. And that realization, that exposure to other founders, I think kind of gave me the confidence to go out and say, Hey, I'm going to take a leap of faith. I've been in this kind of industry now for almost a decade. And I think now is kind of the right time to go out and start my own thing. Um, and then from there, it was kind of a gradual process of building momentum, right? So you you have that initial idea, that initial spark, you build the deck, you send it to a few people, you get feedback that's either positive or negative. You take that feedback, you incorporate it in the next version of the deck, you get the introduction to the next person that's a little bit more credible in the space that is maybe excited or not excited about your idea. And uh, what goes from kind of an initial idea into a real business, it just kind of Uh, At least for me, snowballed over the course of six or so months.
0: So the development process. So it sounds like you wrote a business plan. You knew it was going to be a direct to consumer business, but the actual physical product. So how did you come up with exactly what were going to be the launch products? I guess. And um, how fast was that process as well?
1: Yeah. So the the idea of the creatine gummy. Uh, was born out of my own frustration with kind of creatine powder. And what I imagine a lot of people are also feeling with creatine powder. Um, it's inconvenient. It doesn't taste great. It's hard to travel with. And the thing about creatine to see the full benefits is you really have to be taking it every day or at least five days a week. And the re- reality is that most people just aren't making a shake or some kind of supplement drink on that consistent, that consistent of a basis. And the idea of the gummy was what if we could make a a supplement that was uh, something that people look forward to taking on a daily basis because they look forward to it. That'll lead to better adherence and better adherence leads to better results on on top of kind of the intellectualization of all that. People just like gummies. Uh, We've seen that across a bunch of different compounds. Um, So I thought that was a differentiator as we were going to market. Um, I didn't come from supplements. Uh, I certainly didn't come from uh, gummy manufacturing. That's not what my background is in. I called basically 20, 25 gummy co-manufacturers, pitched them on my idea. And to a one, basically each gummy manufacturer said, uh, "You know, that's not possible for X, Y, and Z chemical reason. These are the chemical properties of, of creatine. We can't fit the amount that you want into a gummy, or we're not willing to do the R&D to help you get this to market. Um, so after a, a couple of months of hitting my head against the wall, trying to find the right partner, we brought on essentially an outsourced VP of ops to help us commercialize and bring this to market. He connected us with a reputable gummy manufacturer based on the West coast. Um, they come from CBD gummies actually. So it's gotten really proficient at fitting active compounds into gummy supplements, which led very well to fitting creatine into a gummy. Um, and so for due to their connections, Uh, they were willing to take on the project as an R&D project. And after dozens and dozens of samples and and R&D batches, we finally got to a V1 of the product that we're comfortable commercializing and bringing to market. Since then, we probably had 15 to 20 improvements and iterations off that initial commercialized V1. Um, But that's kind of the name of the game here. Listen to customer feedback uh, and continuously improve on the product because it is a relatively innovative product in terms of, um, you know, when it came to the market and other existing products on the market at the time.
0: Did anything surprise you when you launched that was, uh, you know, that you ended up changing? One of the things that we found when we launched Hint was we had a clear label. And we thought, you know, it's it's a it's a clear product. We want everything to be clear. And what we didn't take into account was the lighting in stores. And this is clearly different for a direct-to-consumer business, but I've heard this over and over again for people, for example, who have frozen products. So you don't want a clear window in a frozen product because you get that ice right inside and no one can actually see or it doesn't look right. So I'm curious was is there anything about either the product or the packaging that you were like oh wow you know I painstakingly wanted that and and it just didn't work uh so I love these stories where uh people you know think that they're doing the right thing and uh and maybe spend more money trying to do the right thing and then you're like no one cares
1: yeah yeah an interesting thing uh, I learned that selling gummies in the summer is a, a tough business if you don't have the formula down pat. Um, and so our first summer in, in operations was this last summer. Uh, and our product uses um, allulose, which is a an amazing alternative uh, to sugar. It's a great sweetener, but it has a few properties that when exposed to heat, the allulose will actually weep out of the gummy, uh, giving off the the, almost the resemblance that the gummy is melting. It's, the gummy is not actually melting, but the allulose is basically getting sucked out of the gummy and accumulating at, on the edges of the gummy and at the bottom of the bag. And so that's exacerbated in heat. And so in the summer, when UPS trucks can be up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, our, our gummies experience that in certain parts of the country. Um, and that happened because we you know weren't cutting corners and using an expensive sweetener like allulose. We're using a uh, pectin vegan gummy base that uh, it's tougher to contain the allulose within the gummy versus a gelatin, which is a little bit harder, um, but of course is made with animal products. And so that's kind of the main one. Uh, And we we definitely had some uh, good learning pains this past summer. Since then, we've reformulated the product uh, to make it anti-melt. We've reduced the allulose content such that it doesn't weep out. Um, But yeah, for a month or so there a lot of our customers were receiving blobs of what looked like melted gummies. Um, and we tried to do right by them and, and um, ensure that they had a good experience with us going forward. But uh, definitely something we, we had to learn in the hard way the first time.
0: So when you first launched, you were direct to consumer. And I know that you are uh, moving beyond that. How do you make that decision that you're going to go into stores? Is it... Um the opportunity comes up or are, are you actually thinking that that's part of the overall Omni strategy?
1: Yeah, I think over time for Create to kind of uh, be successful in terms of accomplishing our mission, we do need to be omnichannel. We need to be everywhere and more where customers are buying Creatine today. Um, I think right now, our, our goal is to build a really strong, profitable, high growth, standalone e-commerce business and be opportunistic mm-hmm. about the retail partners, the omni-channel partners that we take that initial leap of faith with. You know this 10 times better than me, Kara, but the, the level of complexity that's added into one of these D2C businesses when you are shipping product into the real world to these retail partners, that some of which are really easy to work with, some of which are less easy to work with, but it just adds a ton of complexity. And Right now, our goal is how can we reduce complexity as much as possible such that we can you know, triple down on the thing that we do really well, which is selling to direct-to-consumer on Amazon.
0: Yeah, definitely. When you go into these retailers too, it's not just about uh, dealing with, with a distributor that is uh, holding onto your product in a warehouse way in the back room and has thousands of other products that they're dealing with. But in addition to that... You have to get brokers that are watching it, merchandisers, and it's uh, it's pretty scary for a lot of brands, and they have no idea, um, you know, once going into it, how much you've got to uh, do in terms of you know resourcing to be successful. So it's it's uh, it's definitely people think, oh, retail, it's going to be great, but you really, really have to think long and hard about that.
1: Yeah. And, and I'll be the first to say I have uh, no expertise in retail and wholesale. And I, I feel like in e-commerce and D2C, I have a, a really strong grasp of what best in class looks like. I have relatively strong case. I know kind of who the good partner... I can snuff out like, who's going to be a good partner and who's not going to be a good partner pretty quickly. In retail, that's just not my background. It's not something that I feel like I have a ton of um, kind of expertise in. And hopefully that comes over time. But um, I just feel a little bit more, I guess, naturally at home operating uh, online.
0: So you spent time in the direct-to-consumer world. You were in the finance side of things, FPNA, uh, but definitely had been around direct-to-consumer. You told me this great story about your sister and how she's been um, so instrumental and, and kind of Uh, inspiring you, I guess, uh, as well as mentoring you along the way, which is terrific. What do you think today makes a successful D2C business? Uh, I heard you say the word profitability. Um, But it's uh, what what do you see as, I guess, what makes a successful D2C business today, but also how do you get there? And and you've got an idea for a product, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to go and launch a website. I'm going to go talk to Shopify and go launch this. Like it doesn't stop there. What do you have to do at this point in order to kind of really make sure that it's going to be successful beyond having a great product?
1: Yeah, and I, I think you're uh, right in making that caveat because I, I I do think it does come back to a product that consumers want to buy. Um, But yeah, I I mean, I think for us, I'm not one of these people that it's like, you know, profitability at all costs and you got to bootstrap everything. And, um, you know, I, I actually believe there's, it's more about just knowing what you're getting into, knowing the business that you're getting into and capitalizing and structuring the business to hit certain goals. So if, if my goal was to build, you know, um, a, a massive platform of different supplements and take on someone like momentous or first form or optimum nutrition. Um, I wouldn't want to grow so quickly. I would raise more money. I would be making a bigger swing at, Hey, I'm going to own the supplements category, not I'm going to own a single supplement within the supplements category. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's mostly just about, um, going into this with a strong understanding of the physics of your business. My business Mm -hmm. is right now um, not a business that can justify burning a million dollars a month, but I think the opportunity is large enough that we can justify burning, call it $100,000 a month, because the size of the prize is large enough for that to ultimately be a risk-adjusted good bet to make in two to three years. Um, and so I, I don't really have like a you need to raise money to start one of these things or, you know, you need to bootstrap it the first six months. I think it's just kind of right sizing your entire strategy to the size of the opportunity and the type of business you want to run. What I will say is a few things make this a little bit easier, just having been in this uh, for you know a decade or so now. I think one, high margin makes this game a lot easier uh, hitting, you know, 50 to 60% gross margins all in make, uh, you know, collecting more money when you're sell each dollar, each penny that you collect more on each dollar that you sell makes everything a lot easier. Having a business um, where you're selling consumable products where the customer is coming back to you naturally, either through subscription or just natural uh, consumer, um, consumer behavior makes this a lot easier. Having a product that does w- really well online, but will also do really well offline eventually, I think makes the size of the opportunity better. For example, mattresses do really well online, a little bit harder to sell those mattresses offline if you're someone like Casper today. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think having a core kind of community, I actually don't love that term. I think it's uh, kind of marketing vs. Uh, a little bit at this point, but having a group of customers that really identify with your product and will go out and evangelize on your behalf without you compensating them to do so. But because they really believe in what you're doing or really love the product makes everything else a lot easier. Um, So yeah, I think, I I don't know if I answered your question directly, but those are maybe some of the, the things to look for.
0: No, definitely. And I think that's true. We met on, uh, on Twitter when somebody, a few people were actually talking about Create and in a very positive way. And as you mentioned, they're not, uh, investors. They're fans. Not that an investor can't be a fan, but it's, uh, they were definitely very authentically, um, chatting about Create. So great job. And I think the more you can get people talking about it, uh, the better. I think the other thing that, that you've just nailed too, is that your product is lightweight. So it's a little harder, even if you've got great margins, if you've got a heavier product because, um, or something like a mattress, um, that is uh, bulky, and and the shipping or the delivery is going to be part of the equation. So you always have to look out for that as well. But things like search, uh, there's so many different op- opportunities today around Instagram, and uh, and not just putting an ad up, but actually being able to transact right there. So too is is um, pretty interesting. Have you been doing some of that through? TikTok and some of the social, or how have you been using social today?
1: Yeah, so our, our main channel uh, is actually Meta, and I know that's commonplace. I, I think if you put every DTC founder or most DTC founders on Truth Serum and ask them where they're deploying their ad dollars, I think they'd say somewhere between eighty to ninety percent on Meta. I think out of the last couple of years, it became out of fashion to admit that, uh, you know, most of your marketing dollars were going towards meta because uh, it's become clear that um, not that it's a bad thing, but meta does have a lot of control over these companies. Um, mm-hmm. My perspective there is that uh, that is true and you should know that going in, you shouldn't be surprised uh, when, uh, you know, if meta stops working, your business also stops working. Like that's something you need to be aware of. But I don't think that means you should totally shun Meta as a a marketing channel. I think for many products, maybe perhaps not water due to the weight uh, dynamics you were mentioning earlier, but for a lot of D2C products, uh, it's the greatest customer discovery tool ever rolled out. Uh, Google search, I always say, is like uh, Google search helps you uh, kind of mind the demand that you've already created, but there's no one else, no other platform is going to help you generate demand like Meta. It's um, yeah. So Meta is our our number one uh, marketing platform.
0: I totally agree. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So it, it for hint, it's always been such a key thing uh, to, for Meta. And I, I always found it fascinating because the demographics, uh, the the core demographics for Hint is uh, is younger than what is hmm. on Meta, what people think is on Meta, but it definitely does transact, and I think it's it's um I think that's true for so many. So I'm a little surprised that that's where your transactions are happening too, but it's it's not that surprising.
1: Yeah, I I think it's just a relatively. I mean, it's the most scalable marketing channel uh, right now for our brand. Over time, I think we'll have to focus a little bit more on top of funnel and um, some of these macro level influencers. But right now, uh, you know, having a machine that's basically dollar in, dollar out uh, that you can scale incrementally month over month is, is super important.
0: So, investors, you and I talked a little bit about this. So, uh, definitely bringing on investors in the journey. You're still pretty early, um, but. What do you? I'm sure you've heard horror stories of investors, uh, you know, over the years. And and when you're looking for investors, you've got this idea, you've got, you know, this company that you really think is going to help people. What do you think you you look for in an in an investor? That uh, what what's sort of your words of wisdom in looking for the best investors?
1: Yeah, I mean. I'm I'm so relatively early in in the capital raising story here. We've raised, you know, just under two million dollars. And so the types of investors that are interested in this type of opportunity um, that want to invest in these relatively early stage companies is perhaps a little bit different than the growth equity investors that like to cut call it ten to five to ten million dollar checks in more established brands. Um so for me, what I'm really looking for honestly, our other founders and operators that have done it before and perhaps have had a successful exit uh, because they not only bring capital to the table, but bring on the ground, boots on the ground, know-how of uh, here's what to look out for at GNC, for example, because we've sold $10 million of product a quarter at GNC or uh, don't use this marketing agency. We've tried them. They are not great. Instead, use this agency. I can get you a sweetheart deal because... You know, I've done hundreds of millions of dollars of business with them. Um, And so at this stage, I I really like working with other operators and founders, whether they're still active or have already had their exit.
0: I I think that's a great answer. And I think just networking around, even if those people aren't going to become investors, you're doing a great job of just connecting with people and reaching out. I think that uh, if you have a fear of doing that, then entrepreneurship may not be for you because you really do need to just, you know, be bold and, and reach out to people, whether that's, uh, you know, through social or, or, you know, picking up the phone. So I think it's such a, such a key thing.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say oppositely, I think kind of like one thing, the whole CPG D2C community has learned over the last couple of years is that, um, Going back to understanding kind of the physics of your business, I think in the 2010s or early 2020s, investors were um, you know, funneling tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into businesses that fundamentally couldn't hold that type of capital. The size of the opportunity that they were attacking um, didn't need that much capital and it led to um, undisciplined operating because that's what their investors were telling them to do. Right? Uh, if I put a $100 million check into your business, um, I expect you uh, to allocate that capital um, and get a return on it, not just sit on it. So I think a lot of operators and founders, um, because this was the direction they've been given by their investors, we get into why the investors are doing that in the first place. It's because they want to deploy more capital to raise the next fund to take their fees out. That's the name, that's the business they're in. And also because, again, uh, it's not all ill will, but I think um I think that's what we've seen in D 2 C and CPG is that for the last five years and maybe not in the last two or so, but prior to that, um, these companies were just given too much capital and their the businesses couldn't hold it. Like there there was nowhere mm-hmm. to do there was nowhere to allocate that capital in a efficient manner. Um like bar none. Like very few, very few have actually taken that hundred million and been like, we're gonna allocate it efficiently and turn it into 500 million. Um, and so, yeah, I think just kind of looking out for that, especially as you get later stage, making sure you're taking a check or taking investor that has the same goals as you and is not forcing you to get over your skis because that's how these businesses frankly go to zero.
0: Yeah. And also figuring out how to build that board too. I don't know if you have a board yet, uh, but definitely I've, I've, uh, Heard horror stories of uh, when, you know, people are investing early on and then taking board seats and are not, um, you know, later on, uh, not necessarily the people that you want on the board, but you've got shareholder rights agreements that allow them to seats and they end up, um, you know, being very difficult. So I think it's, there's so many different components, um, not just about what percentage of the company they're taking or how much money they're putting in but i think being very very careful and creative about your board is super super important
1: totally
0: for sure so uh if you could go back in time and maybe this is a piece of advice that you would give another founder uh maybe you've done something wrong along the way um uh, that you feel like now you know or or maybe it's a story around uh, something that you 've seen and some of the other companies that you work for too what what is it that you're most careful about today that until you were actually in the work world starting your own company that you just no one told you?
1: I think it goes back to um, to what I was just talking about is that there aren't any actual goalposts that these businesses need to hit to be successful and being alive is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, no matter how exciting an opportunity is, no matter how frankly exhilarating it is to put up massive growth numbers, um, sometimes you need to restrain that in order to ensure that, um, you know, your problem really balances the business and you're not mm-hmm. getting over your skis and you can live to fight another day. Um, so it's almost like, finding that right balance between, you know, risk and, and reward. And, and sometimes you got to be foot on the gas to, uh, take it as much advantage of the opportunity in front of you as possible. And other times you have to make the boring decision to not hire that person or not put up that billboard or, uh, not take on that you know growth round where the investors often knew so much money at high valuation and all seems great. Um, yeah, I think it's just it's kind of uh saying no to things is is sometimes more beneficial than than uh taking every opportunity ahead of you.
0: Yeah absolutely the shiny objects right it's uh syndrome when you get these opportunities and you know they sound great and you've got a celebrity super interested they want to take half the company or you know whatever it is I, I've heard it all <laughs> yeah um, so you just you definitely need to kind of take a step back and think about things I think it's it's uh, wise words for sure so Dan McCormick, founder and CEO of create good luck with everything uh, everybody needs to try create and uh, we'll definitely be following you and um, very excited for everything that you're doing in the future.
1: Kara, thank you uh, so much for having me on.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. I would love to hear from you too, so feel free to DM me. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Undaunted, where I share more about my journey, including founding and building, Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for